We're actually recording that. Are we recording? Yeah, strange enough. It's an amazing world we live in. Hi, yeah. um, this is Tom. I'm Balder. And we're back for number eight. Um, so, one thing we've noticed about these is that certainly in the last four or five that we've done, maybe not in the first couple, that we've started doing them in pairs. That the Because, <clears throat> just to let you into the secrets of how we do podcasts, um, <laughs> Trying to find time that we, he and I can sit down and do a couple of these is not that easy that we tell you to sort of put a morning aside or afternoon aside and do two at once. So sometimes they link thematically, sometimes they link very kind of obviously the conversation goes from one podcast to the next podcast. This is one of those. That the question that we were interested in asking last time, or the things we, we discussed last time, was um, not at all what TouchPress did wrong, but what are the problems facing the market at the moment? What are the problems that are kind of intrinsic in? digital digital literature digital mm. objects that kind of borrow from literary forms and kind of just trying to unpick a little bit i think we, we were probably very very broad in that but i think the second half the boulder arrived on my doorstep an hour or two ago and said this should be the second one, this should be the <laughs> one actually does i think sort of top and tail that and you just use kind of off podcast which is now a term um the term book ending that we end up with we start one conversation and finish the conversation in the second one so this the next hour is going to be about. Hmm. Oh, was it, what would be a, a sensible approach to building? If we were, if we were, were given the opportunity to start a company or organisation like Touch Press, mm-hmm. with the same similar sort of stated goals of building interesting interactive media experiences mm-hmm. that are literary and sort of have literary qualities and some uh, and that sort of thing, mm-hmm. what would we do? What sort of advice? What would be the sensible approach to? Building inter- interactive media. I mean, it's, it's sort of obviously this part, a part of this is also talking about ourselves because it, the, yeah. this is what we're, what what we're what we do is that we this is the area that we we work in or or are you know or like to work in. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So this is sort of like we are sort of outlining what our you know what our philosophy of these things would be. Yeah. What are what, what, what's our mission statement? What are the things that we're interested? In? What, what are the things that we think that? Yeah. Although I'm, the the idea interested. though is to try and make it more like something that's more general than I, specific. I, I was going to say I was going to not preface it, but end up by saying actually this is not an advert for what we do. This is us trying to give some sensible sort of ideas. So, uh, well, the, the obvious first thing to do is you know don't sell to consumers. <laughs> Apparently not. Yeah, I really mean, it's sort of, if you if you look at what makes money uh, in interactive media, um, it's um, it's training, it's um, prof- you know, it's professional data, mm-hmm. it's um, the you know uh, financial information, it's uh, it's educational uh, uh, stuff that is is f- focused on a, on a single industry. Okay, uh, but it's sort of selling that, to professionals. All those things are true, but why can't you sell to consumers? Why can't you find a way to sell to consumers? Because one thing we said last time was that the the app stores mitigate very badly in mm. identifying a group of consumers. But that, that there are there are outlier examples. There are examples of projects that have done very well selling to a consumer base that yeah. do that hit their targets um, that sell in as you said a kind of indie games model. But actually, that's not a bad set of sales figures, mm. and certainly. Eclipses first novels by some way. Well, pretty much everything eclipses first no- first novels by some way. You probably but, to earn more earn earn more money selling donuts at your local market than no, from complete, a novel. But, no, I, I completely. But being glib aside, there are. I mean, yes, we one thing we also addressed last time is that the the big five, the larger publishers in the sector, are almost kind of built around 
for good or for ill, the idea of a blockbuster, a kind of A-list um, tentpole thing that's going to sustain them for a year. If they don't get that, then they're in some sort of trouble. Well, they're shifting towards that, definitely. They're definitely shifting toward that, and that's often um, non-fiction, it's memoir, it's also looking for the, the big fiction big hitters. But there are an awful lot of smaller, more independent publishers of a reasonable size who never get that who never get those names. They're, they're, yeah. And they're almost they're not saying they're not interested in those names. They will survive by doing stuff that is a little more boutique, a little more well, the, the, well, the, in, object based. But the problem they're facing is that they are competing with self publishers which are providing the same sort of value to the reader sure. but without mm. any of the overhead. Yeah, and uh, which, uh, there's a reason why all of the mid-level publishers are either going bust or getting bought up. Okay, they, so that they are they are they they they're, they're in a very hard place. Yeah, but this is self-publishers in a digital market, and I know we're talking about digital per se. I guess my example was more thinking about organisations like Cargo, like Salt, who yeah. who print conventional books. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. And, and their market is is the book market of Tangerine Press. I'm just looking at the reissue of Jack London's People of the Abyss that I bought at the V&A. Of things that are out there and are beautifully designed and that exist, they also have very specific value proposition in terms yes, of who they, they talk to <clears throat> and, and yes. who they're uh, 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 sort of who they know exactly who they're selling to and who yeah. they're publishing towards. And I guess that's what that's exactly my point as regards a digital first mm. thing that we, that we that we do want to talk about is that you need. I think the first thing you would need to do if you were setting something up, and just because I'm less, I'm personally less interested in selling to. Professionals in, in doing <laughs> no, not because, but that's we we said it wouldn't be about us. But I think that's I'm interested in fiction. I'm interested in literature. I'm interested in what the book can do and where we can go with this. And I yeah. think there are enough examples out there of equivalent products, of equivalent market approaches that don't that that gear away from the book as an absolute object, um, as a kind of. And I'm going to give away my reference point here as a great immutable artifact. Yeah that mean that they are potentially interesting if what we're saying is what, how would we do differently what Touch Press have done? Yeah. How would we start to think about that? And I think the first thing that is absolutely identifying your market and talking to your market and, and cultivating your market um, yeah. in a way that, you know, we've, we've been a bit dismissive about publishing, not understanding consumers and not knowing how to deal with consumers before, but I think one of the first things that smaller presses do is they have a very strong presence and a very strong identity around a certain sector of market well even to the degree where um if you look look at most or uh, a lot of small presses and a lot of self-publishers and the same which uh, when you get to a certain size Mm. you sort of um, four or five group you the distinction between self-publishing and and uh, and small press tends to get very vague it's just the the only differentiation tends to be then what's integration points self-publisher tends to be integrated around an editor and the self-publisher tends to be well the small press tends to be integrated around the editor the self-publisher around the author yeah but they are they're they're basically structured around uh, 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 in the same way very similar manner yeah Um, but uh, and the thing that what's interesting is that the ones that work well there and even most of them they tend to sort of they tend to organically come from a community. Sure. They tend to be people who, who are already a part of a community around a genre or an interest or even a location. Yeah. And they just feel feel the demand, feel the calling of the community that they this is something they can do and they already know the, that most of the people who are going to be the first buyers. Yeah. And that hurdle is such a uh, such an important hurdle to be able to pass is mm. if you're a part of a community and you already know that you, you if you look at, look around and say I know I can sell the first hundred mm. copies yeah. because I, I'm already uh, once you've done that 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 is a huge hurdle to pass that 
it almost guarantees your survival as a small uh, small press publisher if you if you if you are, are uh, sort of find yourself in that circumstance mm. be almost irresponsible not to become a self uh, 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 a small press or self publisher in that it would. if you're in that yeah don't do that because that's something that we're in. yeah we're we're starting to figure out how we respond to that in yes but that's, that's a different conversation for a different podcast. but yeah it's it, it it comes to, down to the same thing is that human beings are inherently communal and social and the yeah. web is inherently communal and, so, uh, and social and when you when you bring those two things together what tends to happen is that people tend to cluster and around their interests and yeah. you you every one of us is a part of one group or another that online around our interests and that is that's the first place you should start that's the yeah. first place you should focus is that you should start with what you can do and and who you can talk to because that doesn't limit yourself later on from growing beyond that and addressing a larger market. Because that hurdle of having the first audience mm. is such a, an important thing, just emotionally. It, yeah. It's mm. both. It's important financially because that's obvious. It's like having yeah. your first bias. But it's also important emotionally of having somebody who isn't your family yeah. and friends, but people who share your interests that will that will uh, uh, that uh, acknowledge the value mm. of what you're doing. That yeah. is just. Just like a, it, it's a psychological burden that that's lifted from uh, from people that when you're in that yeah, context. Yeah, so so, so, the, so the, in that respect, our our fledgling digital publisher, our, mm. our ideal our ideal model, um, there's going to be Nick Harkway thing. Boot, boot, this, it's basically a bootstrapped digital publisher rather than the the funded yeah, funded one. Yeah, look, it completely is is interested in a very specific market. Is is interested in people like them or interested in people they can have a conversation with and they feel they can have a conversation yeah. with. And I guess the because I think a little bit, a little bit of this next forty minutes or forty-five minutes we've got now is going to borrow from models out there. It is interestingly a kind of Chris McBay, Fahrenheit Press approach. Yeah. Is that there are people who respond to Chris's particular personality <laughs> style? Um, God bless him. No, but, but that 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 idea that Chris fronts, and I've never met Chris. You've met Chris, but mm. Chris fronts as a kind of. A jovial, genial, angry post-punk publisher who is yeah. so pissed off with everything else that he's going to just push this out, and he attracts a set of like-minded people who yeah. are similarly. If we're not as angry as Chris purports to be or maintains to be, we have sympathy, we understand the position, and we need to go with him for that. And almost kind of, I don't say irrespective of the stuff he's putting out there. There is a sense of community around mm. that. There's a sense of people, the people who follow him, people who will retweet, who are interested in that. That that. It feels like something worth supporting and something worth parting with your cash for because you are making a difference. You're pushing that out there. And that's a particular niche. Mm. But also, uh, one thing I've uh, sort of... Uh, put the whole punk aesthetic actually, as it turns out, is quite complementary to crime and thriller fiction. Oh, completely. Which is sort of like... A, yeah. I wouldn't have thought that before. It's sort yeah. of like... It, but when somebody points it out to you and you think about it, yeah, actually, that those two actually quite gel, gel well together in terms of just aesthetics and, no. and themes. And, and the other thing about the punk aesthetic, and just, we are just going to psychoanalyse Chris to, <laughs> until he's rather uncomfortable, <laughs> is that for me, it absolutely fits with... Um, okay, I mean, you and I have a history in comics and a history of understanding the comics market from the outside and partly from the inside for at least 20 or 30 years now. Yes. Um, but what's interesting to me about that is the self-publishing explosion that happened in the 80s. Yeah. Is that, you know, from... And there are different ways of modelling this, from a kind of... The kind of clamping down that the Comics Code Authority brought in in the late 60s, early 70s, a result of post-hearings in the House. And yeah. A kind of 
a kind of in, intellectual and creative stifling that happened. Then what you what you got was a backlash that happened because desktop publishing became available, because copying became available, because it was cheaper to do it. And so the, the, the direct market is that once you have yeah. specialized, specialized, a specialised distribution system mm. that bought comics on a non-returnable basis, it yeah. made self-publishing viable. In the, it essentially did it, yeah. it made self-publishing viable for comics in the same way that the Kindle made it viable for e-books. Because yeah. it's the same thing there. You do not have to worry about uh, returns. Mm. You just uh, put it into the channel and people buy it. People buy it, yeah. And, and, and there's a model there from coming out. But that's it. for me, that that particular thing that's about 1984, 1987, when mm. that really happened, it obviously was happening before then. There are, yeah. there are independents and Cerebus is, the, is my favourite example that goes back to 78, of something yeah. that started and began a kind of wave of stuff. Um, that also falls out of um, very limited artist book self-publishing. Yeah. That certainly happened in this country. And Jake Tilson is my example for that, of someone who was producing really beautiful, limited runs of stuff under his own press and yeah. just selling them at book fairs selling them on uh, second hand stores in London and built a community around that and that is absolutely a kind of post-punk punk aesthetic or mm. post, you know, punk aesthetic before post-punk even occurred so there is there's more to Chris than just <laughs> the post-punk fitting crime it's that the post-punk fitting a kind of a, a thumbing your nose to authority, thumbing your nose to the orthodoxy mm. of this is the only way you can do this that can, can really kind of rolls around and, and informs the ethos of independent publishing. Yeah, Re- Certainly in the last 30, 40 years, reg- almost regardless of genre, regardless of where you're coming from, is that you attract like-minded people. You attract, you bring people in who want to be in the know, who want, yeah. to, who want to say, and this is the other thing about Chris's second um where the lobster book. Yeah, that's right. The the, the the people who committed before we knew what the title was got the name yeah. in the book. I mean, it, and it's, it's a, that's a lovely thing. Yeah, I mean, it's a gimmick. It's but absolutely it, a, but gimmick. It's a gimmick that that plays. Oh God, yeah. it plays well to the audience because he knew exactly what that the audience would would. It's it's an it's an understanding that the this that specific audience mm. is playful and yeah. likes the sort of. That uh, yeah, it likes uncertainty, likes playfulness, likes bit, a bit of risk, and it wants to live slightly on the edge. It wants to be part of kind of vaguely counterculture-ish, mm. vaguely not running the orthodox. Um, yeah, Unbound has the same model in terms yeah. of print. The, the Unbound model. We we, uh, uh, we tend to go more mainstream now in we, terms of our choice of titles. You said we. They pay my ch- uh, t- uh, they pay, uh, pay, uh, you know pay my salary. It's sort of uh, I have to say we am practically contractually obliged to say Fair that. Enough, even though I, d- I don't really have any say in, in editorial by the way. No. Sort of. but, no, but that that model that you, you you support something and you get your name in it is absolutely part of Unbound's mm. business model and it's part of a Kickstarter business model that kind of runs back. But yeah, I think that these things go deeper and understanding them is one way. Understanding and being able to use them is one way to approach a digital marketplace. And the other and to thing, identify who you, who your audience actually are. And the one thing that I find interesting that few people copy is or go for is the fact that there are large parts of the existing market which are under addressed right. systematically. And basically, um, and there have been actually several good. Um, um, blog posts on this and mm-hmm. writing on this and it's the fact being that for example um, black literature in America is yeah. better served by self-publishing than by, by big publishers okay. because big publishers ghettoise them they put them they put them into shelves that are segregated from everywhere else but mm-hmm. self-publishing just you know if you if uh, uh, it, 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 they, you can just 
put the uh, put the uh, novel where it belongs and reach yeah. out to a lo- uh, both to a large audience, but also to the audience that is underserved in general. And the same thing with um, gay literature is that you can actually do a book with a gay uh, a gay lead character without it being shelved in under queer literature. You can sure. just put mm-hmm. it in the thriller section, yeah. and the people who the audience that actually just wants to see themselves mm. as the protagonist of yeah. a thriller yeah. can finally buy that but you can't get that from regular publishing because publishing always ghettoizes the niche audience they, they segregate them and it, feel, and it feels like that's a richer understanding of something that's often that was talked about very early on in terms of um, a digital marketplace of the notion of the long tail yeah, um, it's 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 a more nuanced understanding of how that actually works, rather than assuming that long tail gets, um, you know, truncated down to everything will be available forever because yeah. it's there because you can order it somewhere, and that that for a long time that was the way that was certainly described. Well, um, it's the the long tail long tail is chunky. That's, yeah. that's the thing yeah. that, that that's always misleading about the graph that a blessing Chris uh, Chris Anderson mm. almost pushed out is the fact that the long tail is chunky and that by addressing parts of it. In a unique way, you mm. can actually sort of and you, and you do pull to together chunks of it. And you do it to address it in unique ways. The, 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 yeah. One of the failings of, of, a, of a conventional approach to it is to assume that it's a one size fits all thing and you just yeah. do it and it's there. That actually, it needs, sorry, second time in three hours, it needs curating, it needs attention, it needs <laughs> bringing through, and it, it needs thinking about in terms of what you're trying to do. And some of that's luck, and yeah. some of that is then responding to luck and responding to circumstance, um, but also figuring out what you do with it. So, okay, on the one hand, it's the first thing that the, your, your bootstrap digital publisher does is understand their audience and really yeah. mark it down to an audience. And that, as you say, that can start at 200 people. It can yeah. start at a very, very small number because though one of the things that we've, as circumstance, had some coaching, some dialogue around is who are our super fans? Yeah. Who are the people who will... I'm not going to say show up for everything we do because what we do is international and that's very difficult unless you've got a you know a private jet and we don't have any of those. <laughs> At least if we do, like we show you who they were. Um, but who are the people who are devotedly in, interested enough that they will be the retweeters? They will be the people who, if you push something out there, they'll want to beta test it. Yeah. They will be the, they will be the interested the interested audience that if anyone out that they're listening to it has not read um, Craig Mod's Post Artifact Publishing, God's <laughs> sake, just turn this off. Google Post Artifact Publishing and Craig Mod and go and read it because it's the most interesting thing you'll read on well, the Basically, we're also, what we're describing is basically the model he describes as well. As in, you know, you have a certain audience and you iterate on, on the products for that audience and on a regular basis you sort of chunk out, chunk out specific artifacts for the audience. This is interesting about Craig's stuff um, is that I don't... And I think we said this in the book. Mm. We wrote a book, didn't we? We said this in the book that Craig is one of, I think, one of the most read people commenting on digital publishing and the state of the market and the state of everything but he's one of the least understood because actually yeah. it's a, and I'm not going to blow I'm not trying to blow our own trumpet here but actually what what you need to do with Craig's stuff what I think it, that it offers as an opportunity is to think about actually how it applies Yeah. because he's do, he is trying to do a one size fits all he's trying, to, he's trying to pull back from the whole thing and say look at this look at this look at this because this changes something it changes something completely fundamental to how you're thinking about work and thinking about product. But but to do anything with that, you've got to take the model and run it and play with it and think about how you do the things that he's describing. And because test it. And test it because he's not giving you the answers. He's giving mm. you... He's giving you something I'm very fond of saying to students. He's giving you a way of asking the right question. It's a rhetorical framework. Absolutely. Yeah, and that, that needs... 
which is hugely valuable because it defines boundaries of, of how you how you should experiment. Yeah. But it doesn't give you actually tell you what to do. No, it doesn't really do. But it, it, yeah, it, it gives you a frame to operate in. It gives you mm. something you can bounce against and disagree with and work your way around. So yeah, what, the first thing is audience. The first thing is completely understanding your audience, understanding who they are, and and cultivating them. And that that means you don't switch from genre to genre no. like a like a you know some somebody. Like like a ball randomly skipping around the water stones. It's like you yeah. know, one moment you're doing uh, doing sci-fi, another moment you're doing romance. Yeah. If you're gonna, you know, it would be one thing if you did a sci-fi romance from the start and just did that. That'd be great. great. That's, that's a that's a that's a defined audience. Yeah. But skipping from genre to genre, from audience to audience, you know, you need. You need you need a level of consistency for people to hang on to. Because you're establishing a track record. Because mm. you're, what you're trying to do when you when you put a product out there, when you put anything out that's new into someone's hands, is is get them to trust you. Yeah. And the first trust might come on reputation. The first trust might come on the quality of the work you're doing. But you need absolutely to know that, as you said last time, that simply saying it's a digital product, it's a digital literature, it's a thing, isn't enough. That's not enough of a classification. You need to bring. Because you're bringing an audience in who are going to who who should repeat the purchase, who should yeah. repeat the thing and repeat the thing. That that has to that's that's the for me that's the it's the Amanda Palmer way of thinking about your yeah. career as an artist. Is that you give them something that feels like you each time, but she really you. does understand how 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 to sell uh, sell art on the web. She that's, completely uh, does, absolutely and utterly, and and. You know, if on the one hand we've got we've got Chris McVay in one corner of this argument, I think Amanda Palmer needs to be in another corner. Yeah, well, she's the big bu- a budget sort of qu- well, she, side of, side of the equation. She really. is, and and with, but she but to do that, I think what you need again, this is where Amanda is so easily pigeonholed and easily dropped into a category that either mm. people kind of either people focus on the occasional misstep or the occasional mismanagement of something mm. that happens, and they they then dismiss the entire venture as being. It's it's manipulating your audience, exploiting your audience, and it's absolutely not. It's bringing it's it's bringing that idea of a fan base and making them part of your career and yeah. having them having them feel they ha- that they have an investment in you that you're giving them something valuable all the time, mm. but that that thing that you're giving them is absolutely you. Yeah, it's you, and it's raw. In Amanda's case, it's very raw. It's very emotional. It's so very basically, honest. So basically, what, one thing that the two of them do share is a level of authenticity that you Completely. that you that and that is basically another requirement of yeah. of, 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 of what you do. You yeah. need you need either authenticity or or a plausible replica of authenticity. Yeah, <laughs> something something yeah something that feels that I want to part with my cash for because none mm. of this works unless you've got an audience who are willing to pay money, who are willing to kind of cough up, mm. even on every six-month basis or on every year basis, someone who will pay you to keep doing this thing. Because this is not... Um, public, publicly funded artworks are no way to make a living, and I know that. Yeah. You know, we, we, we've done this for... Well, you, ha- you basically have to be in a, like, a, you know, one of the Nordic socialist countries if you want to do that. Yes, completely, yes. And, so I've got, yeah. I've got a, my, one of my cousins, actually, she, uh, her, uh, she literally gets paid by the state to do art. And it's right. done for years now. Sort of, uh, she get, it's called, basically, literally called, uh, you know, artist salary. Right, everybody, um, we're moving to Iceland. Yeah. <laughs> no, going. they only give it to Icelanders. Oh, really? Yeah. Well, Icelandic citizenship, so that means okay. you'd have to spend years to, to, to through get, immigration to get the passport and etc. Uh, etc. Et really? Sort of, yeah, oh, it's it. it's not worth it. it. Costs too much money. Doesn't even cap people from Grimsby. Yeah, no, it probably goes against you. Really. It goes against me. Okay, yeah, yeah. Yes. Sort of old, bad blood and all. Bad that. blood. There's a very long history. It's so when mm. you do this. Yeah. Okay, right. So, audience. 
audience and authenticity the first two things that you need mm. um, and within those comes a certain set of consistency and understanding what it is you're trying to do yeah. and repeating what you're doing and developing and iterating on that mm. and also the thing is and it's going to be we could come back, back to all us back to the same thing is that at least when you when you're starting out you can't start with a bang not in, not on this no. not if you're bootstrapping you can't go with the big budget thing from mm. the start if you you can build up to it but it takes yes. years and it and you need to do it iteratively you basically mm. do projects by project by project iteratively increase the increase yep. the the production mm. values and budget of each until you get to the big budget one yeah but you can't start off with a big budget thing because you haven't proven anything to anybody not even to yourself well, this, you don't this, know this, what you can what they can do well, but do and, well. and this was when you were saying that this is my journey is be damned to not proving it to an audience you're not proving you can do it you're not proving the thing actually works anyway yeah you know that the the, the 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 novel length book app interface thing um of which is a notable example that i talked about last time i think the danger is it, it's so niche. It's so it costs so much to do, and it's so niche in what it does. It becomes a tent pole thing that is never actually going to support the tent, yeah. Because it will continually fall down. It will it will never get enough traction, enough an audience, because it's coming in as it's coming in as trying to be the blockbuster, as yeah. trying to be the whole thing that, without a doubt, is interesting. Without a doubt, has ambition and has um, a set of faith and a set of things about it. But but fundamentally, at its root, it's not tested. No. It's not been iterated. It's not been tried out with an audience, and it's launched kind of fully formed into a marketplace, and everybody goes woo. <laughs> but then a month and a half later, it's woo and what? Yeah. Um, what did it do? Because the other thing I think any, and this does come back to a kind of comics market and a self-publishing market and understanding that the other thing I think any bootstrap digital publisher needs to do is something on frequency. Mm. We're, we're sort of tying back to what we mentioned last episode with yeah. Silent History, which they yeah. they, did, they 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 were essentially a serial. Yeah, and that ties in with the same thing that comics did, which is what kind mm. of what what made self-published comics uh, viable back in the day is that they were serials. Is that once yeah. you what you You're committed? Could, mm. Yeah, and he got people to commit. And there's also a cultural thing in that self-published comics have. They have a credibility uh, that self-published books mm. still don't have. There's, I mean, self-published uh, authors um, with with uh, fiction, they still have a um, stigma to, uh, uh, to a degree. It's going mm. away. It's it's fading definitely. Yeah. But they have they haven't reached the same level as um, self-published comics have. Which self-published comics mm. almost in some uh, um, among some quarters are is is. Almost venerated, as in sort mm. of, uh, and the, th- uh, the thing that I find interesting is that uh, uh, if you look at the um, pay numbers, the the pay differential between self-published and um, commercially published uh, comics mm. is even more stark than in in fiction, as in this is one of the really really uncomfortable truths that publishing is facing is the fact that. If you have an audience, mm. you're almost always going to earn more and have a more sustainable living if you self-publish than if you get a get a publisher. Right. Um, it's it's not as apparent in fiction publishing at the moment, but it's become very stark in comics publishing. Like for example, the 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 um, James McKelvey and um, yeah. mm. uh, the the team behind um, Young Avengers. Yeah. Um, the reason why they have switched uh, almost entirely to doing Wicked and, uh, and Divine mm-hmm. is because the, the even though it sells less, 
they earn dramatically more money per issue of yeah. their self-published work than from Marvel. Mm. Yeah, we, 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 uh, this is Marvel. This is Disney. Mm. So basically, you're uh, sort of up, uh, you're, you're your biggest single corporation in the Western world. Is yeah, and sort of to live on. Mm, yeah, and it's sort of uh, it's just uh, and it's the fact that you uh, and Wicked and Divine is pushed through uh, through Image, which is it's it, which is structured more like a self-publisher's. It's it, pushed through Image Central, um, yep. not one of the uh, labels. Uh, which means that it's 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 ba- it's it's basically the equivalent of a um, self-publishers co-op, mm-hmm. uh, sort of a, a, a shared organisation that helps people pu- uh, uh, publish their own work. And it's just the uh, uh, time and time again, the difference between the, those two is uh, of the the value that authors get from selling their own work mm. to their own audience versus working for uh, uh, selling work through a large publisher. Yeah. Is just becoming more and more stark, and it, yeah. it two years ago the difference was um, if you looked at self-publishing in fiction, you'd say self-publishers almost always earn less money, mm-hmm. but as self-publishing grows in unit mm-hmm. numbers in e- in e-books, as they get m- sort of more diversity in the model, they can do subscription via kind- Kindle Unlimited, you mm-hmm. can do I- individual e- e-book sales, you can do pay- Patreon. Uh, for um, monthly uh, um, um, d- uh, sort of uh, patronage, mm. uh, as that diversifies, the the case for self-publishing becomes in- very hard to deny for publishers. And publishers still, and this we're sort of way off topic now, but publishers still haven't managed to figure out what exactly is their value proposition in this in this, in this new era of. Yeah. Um, where the the author be, has become the integration integration point for the market, but that that said, the uh, which was uh, finally getting to the point I was trying to make at the start, right. which is that the ideal for the new digital publisher thing is that if you are a writer with technical skills willing to experiment. Mm. Then you're in the ideal position to uh, to, to to be a new to, uh, interactive publisher, essentially yeah. applying the self-publishing model to interactive media. Yeah. Where you, uh, if you're capable of experimenting yourself with, um, um, you know, putting together something using JavaScript and mm. and, and markup and yeah. and just test things out for yourself, then you're in a much stronger position to build an a sort of a, a, an inter- interactive media publisher, and then and branching out, including branching out into yeah. publishing other people's work, sure. than somebody who where those skills are separate, as in you, you where you have to find the technical person yeah, or technical person. Yeah, are siloed into different. Yeah. Uh, yeah, or even the technical person who's interested in the field and has to find creative people. That is also harder. Yeah. even to the degree where if you're a te- if you're a technical uh, a technical person with creative skills, that immediately makes it easier for you to mm. to be able to, con- to talk creators and writers to work with you. Yes. So basically, what I'm saying is that it really helps if you're a writer it really helps to learn technical skills yeah. and if you're a technical person it really helps to uh, to learn how to write and learn how to tell stories yeah. and my message to both is that the other skill isn't as hard as you think no <laughs> it's no, completely. T- it's and, and, and at the very least it's learning and this is the thing that it's emma barnes who's making the other pitch alongside Alistair horn at um, future book isn't it yeah um and one of the things that's the root of emma's thing is is as much about learning to code as much about staff development as at the very base level it's acknowledging that this is a language worth learning yeah it's a conversation that you can't have 
with someone meaningfully you can't bring them on board you can't you can't even kind of do some shared development that isn't dropping them in a silo and giving them a set of instructions mm. you then need to kind of refine and iterate and you spend all your time on flowcharts and diagrams that they don't understand well that times that they that this person you're doesn't understand unless you speak the same language and you're both in the room at the same time and you're developing something that you have a kind of a shared ambition the shared goal for I mean, then to, you get more interesting even to the degree where sort of HTML has become the lingua franca of technical yeah. production as in I mean well, one example I, I, I tend to um, refer to because it's funny is that um, you, you need to understand HTML even if you mm. don't have to use it. Yeah. One example that we have is that when when you're t when you're talking to an InDesign develop uh, InDesign designer who's developing the books and you take them, you need to <clears throat> you know you need to tell InDesign that this uh, this style um, corresponds to this mm. this sort of element in HTML yeah. and uh, you go like yeah so the the first heading is H1 the second yep. heading is H2 the third heading is H3 yeah. and the design, design goes oh yeah I got it, I got it. Yeah, this makes sense well, I understand the model now and the, uh, and then when he sends you the book he's got marked up all the paragraphs as H4 because that's the next level down, uh, down from, from H3 yeah. and he didn't actually have to understand, have to make HTML, but he definitely did have to understand HTML as a model to be able mm. to interact with the yeah. rest of the production um, system. So yeah. you need to, it, it's become a lingua franca, it's become an mm. interchange language that you need to understand, even if you don't know how to produce it. It's Esperanto. <laughs> Thank Esperanto you. is actually a very nice and elegant. Oh, no, language. I'm not. I'm not. It's, no, a, uh, a, it's actually it's, it's actually a lot more elegant than HTML. It's it's right. a, it's it's actually it's got an, an aesthetic to it that yeah. echoes um, the uh, sort of rhythm of of Latin and it, and, mm. and Italian and Spanish. Yeah. So the Romantic languages without their irregularities. So it's easy yeah. to use. Anyway, so it's, I like you know. Okay. So yeah. But so this, I mean, yeah, you're right. The shared language, the shared abilities, the the, the, the learning the other skill isn't as difficult as you. As you Thought it might be at being least, really good at it. It's very being difficult. Really, no, <laughs> being really good is very difficult. But actually, understanding what someone's trying to do, understanding that you don't you don't screw up the other person's work. Yeah, because yes, yeah, because exactly. this, had, this this is <clears throat> for the most part there's going to be a shared yes. development, a shared experience. And yeah, not pissing the other person off to the extent they they're never going to work with you again because you don't get it, you don't understand, you, and you're not willing to make that move, make that yeah. distance. That's a really difficult thing. The other thing I think, <clears throat> and this comes back to. I'm not quite finished with frequency yet. Yeah, is iterating in public. Yeah, is yeah. and this this does come back to the, the kind of the obverse of waiting for the one big thing that the, the, the blockbuster project that you that you are everybody's building up to that. I get it. That's what you mm. want to do. You want the thing that makes a big splash. We're all <clears throat> in some way, shape, or form trying to do that. But you want the big attention, big rewards, you, and big money. Well, come, yeah, because. Yes, yeah. It's not. it's what capitalism is about. It's what capitalism is all about, <laughs> and it's what it's how the whole thing works. But I think I do think iterating in public, putting projects out there, putting small things out there on a regular mm. basis, be that because you're locked into a Patreon model that you, you decide to lock into a Patreon model that says you're going to give your audience something every month or every two months or every time it's finished or however that model might be. But the idea that yeah, stuff is put out even when it's not completely finished. It works well enough. It works, and you're inviting them to be part of your community. Yeah. Which the other thing about all these things is that none of them operates in isolation. Every one of these things operates kind of in concert. If you understand your community and you get them on board and you make them support you, then part of that support is the extent to which they will want to be involved, and you yeah. invite them into your process later on. Which for me, this is the unpicking of Craig Mott. Yeah, is that it's not just assuming they are there, but you have to. You have to make them feel that they have an investment, and the investment is more than just monetary. The monetary is almost secondary. The monetary is the thing they do because it allows them to, to 
to, mm. to demonstrate to you how much they love you. <laughs> but yeah. actually, what they want to do is talk to you. They yeah. want to feel that you know you're not because it's it's the the it, on the one hand it's it's unpicking the creativity on a pedestal idea that you know somehow creative people are more special than everybody else. And yes, on the one hand, it's an incredibly privileged thing to be able to do, to, to have the time to do and have the ability to do. But actually, it's not that different to what everybody else does. It's just that we've chosen to do this stupid thing that means that that's what we want to get paid for for the rest <laughs> yeah. of our lives. But we need support to do it. And you always need support to do it. And you need something around that if you don't live in Iceland and you're not you know, an Icelandic passport that enables you to get that thing done. And I think, I think that is, for me, that is about... It's about using a community and being part of a community that supports you and moves you forward. Yeah. And for di for a digital publisher, for someone who's looking at that first, it isn't. It certainly isn't waiting for three things to appear after eighteen months of development and hoping. It's about being public about where you are. Yeah. And it is for me. And it's sorry that was a veiled stab. <laughs> it's the one mis mistake I think that visual editions have made with editions of play. Yeah, is that everything, and that may be a condition of the way that their relationship with Google and Tomoglo worked, is that everything has been so secret for nigh on 11 months of yeah. development. With only bought that one demo that only works on mobile phones. And only works on mobile phones, and there is now a promise that there are three texts out there, one of which at least I will buy because it's... Um, name of the author suddenly escapes me. I look at my shelves and go, it's Reef Larson. Reef Larson doing a book and doing something with visual editions I'd love oh, to cool. see. Yeah. But... I think there is a there is a danger of not having the, the the mystique of this is coming, this is coming, this is coming. Yeah. And the ob okay, this is a really crap example, but the other the other end of that is the Force Awakens, <laughs> which has which knows it knows. <clears throat> I mean, what Abrams knows about that film, from my point of view, is the one thing he has to correct is the prequels. Yeah. He has to correct everything that was wrong, and there's a conversation to get into over several beers, but. The one thing has to the one thing to do about that is in a way it's the same thing that ever that I saw Peter Jackson do with King Kong. Yeah. When Jackson had King Kong, everybody looked at it and went, No. You know, no. one thing, don't remake King Kong. There's no point in remaking King Kong. But what the original what, was fine. The original was absolutely fine and the remakes just demonstrate you shouldn't do it. And kind of almost for my for my money, regardless of what you think of the final product, one thing he did absolutely get right was invite the audience, invite the naysayers into the production process. Yeah. And this is this is in this is way before streaming video was as commonplace now. But the but the the updates, the production updates, the video blogs that were put out as part of that process with Andy Circus, with everybody working and talking and demonstrating, brought people on board. Yeah. And it's for me that's exactly the same approach that Abrams has taken with Star Wars. He did has, you, did he has a thing to fix, and he's trying to fix it. Did you see Saladin Ahmed's point about? Um, his suddenly and uh, suddenly seeing the visual iconography of the trailer, no. it keeps ending on the shot where a black man is fighting a hooded fanatic w uh, holding a cross, a flaming cross. Every trailer ends on that shot, right? And it's sort of like, hang on, all of the lead le leads are either women or they're people of color, yeah. And the lead band guy literally holds a flaming mm -hmm. cross as a hooded fanatic, and okay. he's a hooded religious fanatic. And it's sort of like, oh, yeah, this is this is com a completely different sort of story from the prequels. This yeah. is something closer to the. And did you see yeah. the um, Comic Con um, um, trailer about he actually used actual physical locations for everything? No, and he did an entire Comic Con trailer where he showed that none of these are actually CGI sets. Yeah, 
and he just uh, they're, all, they're all genuine yeah he just did, yeah, he, he just did this panning shot of all the all, all of, of the sets or right. just it was just like a, a what, two minutes of of him doing panning shot of all the sets and just talking about mm. you know these actors are actually standing in yeah. the Millennium Falcon they're actually yeah. standing in that and they're and just talking about the emotional aspect of getting back to the grit and realism of yeah. the first trilogy yeah. and so yeah anyway I, I'm so going to go and see that movie <laughs> It's even through Star Wars. Someone takes Star Wars back to its roots, and with the right age, and with all the age of the. But no, there is, but there is something. The Star Wars new. movie were the first <coughs> mo- first films I saw in cinema. Ah, so it's always going to have a. It's always going to have a place. Yeah. In, in your gut, in your heart. No, but I think he has abs- almost. And, I, and again, this is pre the plot, pre anything, pre not knowing. You know, I'm happy to go in slightly spoiled, but not completely spoiled. Yeah. I don't want to know everything, but I. I admire what's been done, and I and I can see why he's done it. And for me, that it is about iterating in public. It's mm. about letting the process out and letting letting the naysayers in, and letting the fans build up a level of excitement and ambition that they want to go and see it. And they will part with their money on they will part with their money when the big blockbuster comes out. Yeah, because effectively you've gotten to part with their money because and their attention all the way through. Because in a sense, that's the it's the other thing about a digital a digital campaign, a digital thing. It's something again coming back to Chris McVeigh that Chris has got right. One of the things that gets said about digital media is actually the currency is not financial. The currency is attention. Yeah. The currency of digital, the currency of the web, is how long you can keep someone's eyeballs on the screen for before they click onto the next thing because that's fundamentally what the web is built for. It's going from one thing to the next thing to the next thing to the next thing. Yeah. And if you can get their attention and you can get them talking about it, it's... Um, oh, guy blogs a city of sound. Dan Hill's thing, um, writing about Lost that... Lost was an example of new, of a new media text in that the content written about your content was of far greater value than the original <laughs> content itself. Yeah, which is a phrase that I just throw at students every couple of yeah. years. That the more you can get people talking about your work and talking about what you're doing, then it's doing because that's about attention. Yeah, and the, the well, it, it, especially in terms of Lost, it's 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 one of the it's one of those works where. Um, the fandom and the dis- discourse within the f- within the f- uh, within fandom was half of the story. Oh, the story didn't work without the without the entire discourse. It, uh, that's why it was so fixed in uh, in its time, and it it's yeah. very hard to rewatch now after the fact. It's really it's really hard to rewatch now, and for me, it's one of the reasons that the thing that it got so much bad press at the end because mm. it was so because they'd done that job so well early on of yeah. being public of be, of allowing conversation and kind of. And, and encouraging conversation and allowing the season breaks to do that and releasing the alternate reality game to, to kind of to, to really manipulate that entire audience well, especially because the ending that they chose was one that they explicitly dismissed as part of the conversation early on well I like, know yeah, but, bastards but, 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 all, but they were, they were on, for me they were on a hiding to nothing they were the, once they started to close the plot down it got yeah. better it, it got it started to reach for a conclusion but it was never going to be the conclusion that worked because there were much better, in a way, there were much better theories out there. There were much better <laughs> interlocking plots out there. Much better ways of analysing this. This was all to do with. Um, this was about invisibility experiments. This was about Montauk. This was about whatever it was that it was never going to be about. Yeah. Because the final thing is always going to be a letdown. But as a model of thinking about how do you, which is what we're talking about, how do you get attention? Absolutely, it works. Yeah. Which is which is exactly what Chris did with second book from Fahrenheit mm. it's about getting attention about being talked about because no publicity is bad publicity yeah really it's, it's I mean, a, although you know, well it then. depends but it's uh, one thing I find interesting in that um, 
when I, uh, well, uh, both in terms of the people who do interactive media and mm. do interactive literary media and publishers and, uh, and all that, is how none of them are actually using YouTube. No. Um, uh, because it, uh, and when they do, they do it as book trailers or, mm. or high production value things. And they, it's like if you look at, for example, there's, um, um, there's a webcomic called um, Finding Chaos. Right. Um, which is done by um, um, a, couple, a couple in the States. And one of the promotional things they do is they do like low-budget webcam videos where they're just talking about the production. Mm. They'll do a low-budget webcam video where they're just making up fairy tales on the spot because yeah. the, the, mm. the comic they're doing is um, like a um, mystical, magical yeah. thing. Um, and it's sort of like the value of... Uh, of the, it's literally the value of showing your face. Yeah. And uh, people in publishing completely dismiss the value of, of using YouTube just to show your face yeah. to your audience. Um, and um, I mean, uh, uh, sort of ob obviously, I fall into that because uh, you know I don't, you know, I don't use YouTube to show my face to the audience. But then again, I don't have a product to sell. No. If true. I had a product to sell, I would definitely, uh, definitely do like cheap webcam webcam videos just put the iphone on a on a um tripod mm. um use it use its high definition camera just do answer questions make up things talk to the audience in, in a video to, just to make sure it's it's literally just about uh, making sure that they they see your face and and have a so they have a have a personality that to be uh, to, uh, to uh, that they can bolt on to the text that they see later on. Do they have an investment in the idea of you Yeah, as a person? exactly. And, and, you as a, and, and your <clears throat> your creative vision, your drive, your whatever it might be, is pushing out there. No, absolutely. And it's one of the things I wrote down when I, you know, because I have now got a page and a half of notes for <laughs> the last two, last two podcasts, um, was find a way around the app stores. And I, yeah. wrote, I wrote it down because the, the danger is that unless... It, one of the ways to find a way around the app store is to absolutely build your community so they almost ignore the app store and they're coming they're coming to this from your channels not from the app store's channels so yeah. unless they're in the app store trying to find you unless they know exactly what they're looking for then it's you ain't going to get yeah. anything so i'm sorry so you you need to find a way in there but the other thing about that is and it's the thing i felt about as you mentioned in the last podcast in relation to amazon's strategy of releasing fragments of content of allowing samplers for ebooks yeah. of allowing you to look inside is one of the things you need to do is to give people a, vi a view of this already and yeah that, the, and the, the, the app store yeah. ain't going to do it yeah. that, the way to do that is video the way to do that is word of mouth is shareable content and finding stuff that if if that if your primary if you're if you're building apps and we know that's not necessarily the answer because mm. of cost but if you're building something that relies on a platform that doesn't allow you to do that then find other ways to get yeah the vision of that other ways to get, get the buy-in from that into someone's hands because without it well with it you're going to get them and without it you're just you're you're hoping against hope that something works mm. because you need that it's the word of mouth marketing it's yeah. the it's it's the shared content it's the thing pushed out there it's it's for me i mean it's it is the it's the how mark danielewski manages to sell books yeah you know on the one hand it's because they are okay they are beautiful objects they're really there's a, there's a consistency and a conception of vision but one thing that critically you could certainly lay in his door is from House of Leaves onward they have got harder to read <laughs> they have got you know impenetrable to read yeah. you know, only revolutions is 
a stunning thing, um, but is a nightmare to read it because you're turning the book physically round each time every seven, every eight pages. Well, Dave Sim did that with Cerebus. Oh, completely, but yeah. not the... You've seen the book, you've seen Only Revolutions. You've seen Only Revolutions. Only, Only Revolutions is Danielowski's second book. And it's it's two, <laughs> it's two narrator's stories, both oh, yeah. having the same experience. But the idea is that each page has, has, has 360 words on it. Yeah. <laughs> um, there are 360 pages in the book. The type sizes, the typefaces decrease. They start large from one end of the book and decrease down to the other one. The whole thing is designed as a kind of as a high formalist experiment. It's very indecipherable. <laughs> but it's completely indecipherable, and it doesn't. Whereas House of Leaves reads beautifully, and one yeah. of the things we do, I'm going to do one of these just on why House of Leaves is a model. But that that I st- I admire that. I don't like it. Yeah. Although yeah. I think maybe I should just read. And one of the things I should, we should read, you should read it with somebody else, yeah, and have them and say so somebody more patient it. than you. Well, yeah, or just someone <laughs> that you're, yeah, you're reading alongside. You go from that, you go to Fifty Year Sword, which is a really nice thing. This is a really bad podcast. I'm just taking books to the shop. Yeah, well, the the book that he uh, showed me, what, what was it called? Uh, Only Revolutions. It was um, like beautifully laid out, but the each 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 page had. Text that was, you know, varying, uh, varying font sizes. Some of it was upside down. Some of it was like in a, you know, incoherent sidebar that mm. looked like a list of names yep. and, and events. And it was like the, the there was, it was, it, it looked like a hodgepodge. Like somebody had, you know, did a shuffle function, uh, yep. uh, uh, with an InDesign mm. and just sort of yeah. mixed F- things. Fifty Year Sword, which is the book that came out after that, is designed for spoken. It's designed for spoken word actually. It's designed for like, five voices to read aloud. So the the object is a kind of memorial. It's a it's something that you and I talked about before we started this podcast this morning about it's the souvenir thing. So this this looks more like prose poetry. It is prose, it is prose poetry. And yeah. do the colors of the quotation marks because the quotation marks each they have, have different color. characters. Yeah. Oh, okay. So each so it, it's it, in a way This makes a lot more sense. It makes a lot more sense. The the but when you, you talk about YouTube, the way to experience Fifty Year Sword is to sit down and listen to the two-hour reading of it. Ah, uh, yeah. Because he performs it certainly for four or five years. He performed it every Halloween with oh, did he? A set of performers, and they're on YouTube. Oh, that's cool. And I've, I've, I've listened to the performance and what you know, watched the whole thing, and kind of got the tone and the feel of it. And so the book is the book is a is a souvenir. The book is a thing. The book yeah. is, is kind of a way of. And it's a very beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing. Um. But similarly, it's it moves away from the book as a readable thing, and then we get, if you want the next. Yeah. Thing. Now the I'm sort of I'm uh, incredibly boring, pragmatic person speaking here. Is mm. as soon as I see all the quotation marks with different colours, I, I start thinking about the insanely expensive printing printing costs. <laughs> oh, completely. Yeah. Full colour printing. Yeah. Ah. Oh, bloody hell! This is a huge thing. The familiar. This is the first two volumes of the familiar. Uh, are there going to be more? Twenty-seven. <laughs> And, okay, we're, we're now laughing because Daniel. I, I, I've met Mike. Daniel. He's he's smart. He's interesting. He has a mystique. He absolutely does the cult of personality. There is a mystique about yeah. Danielewski in that what he says in the the intelligence behind the design. But the reason he he works is that people tr- that the, there's enough of a fan base out there. They trust the product. Yeah, I mean, just to sort of put this in in context, this this tome. I'm thinking, uh, putting it. This first, this first volume of this of this thing, is it's not like um, you know, a, a nice and handy. This is something like a, a, a nine hundred to a thousand pages, mm. um, and it's uh, you know, uh, and you know, God, this is huge, mm. and it's 
Well, it's, like everything he does, it's gorgeous, and it's it's got like full color elements to it on every page. That's sort of, and I'm going back to the whole printing cost here because I'm, I'm oh yeah completely yeah I'm, I'm boring like that. And he's gonna say, twenty seven volumes. He must have an insane fan base. He has an absolutely insane fan base because I'm not showing you House of Leaves. You know, House of Leaves will do it at a different point, but yeah, yeah, yeah. but he's. I didn't start this podcast and came to talk about Mark Danielewski, but actually a lot of what we've talked about in terms of cultivating a fan base of making something that people will want to have and want yeah. to own and follow you through of iterating in public because one of the things about both um, Only Revolutions as a book so all you you remark that these this long list of dates this long list of things down here which yeah. is, because the book goes from the War of Independence through to about 2022 okay in terms <laughs> of its run so it's, it's a completely unlifespanned love affair between two characters who span the entirety of the history of America <laughs> but these are these are all what he what he did when he was writing it um, and it's the reason that this edition has got a couple of postcards in um, is ask the fan base for the first book of interesting dates in history okay. things that they found personally resonant and things that they found so that's what goes in the book Okay, that makes yeah, cool. Um, the familiar was there are at the at the end of the second volume. I think, I'm not sure it's in the first volume. The end of the second volume because the familiar is about a cat, or it's about it has on the one level things about a cat in it. There are a selection of cat photos which I'm now not going to find. Which are he invites each volume people to submit their cat photos and they will become part of the book. Oh, cool. And it's a tiny little thing, but there is definitely there is mm. a thing about the familiar and Danielowski's work which is about. There we are. Oh, it, it turns into a collage. It's a collage of cat photos. Of, <laughs> it's of completely involving your audience. Yeah. And one of the one of the ways for me that Danielewski addressed addresses before Craigmore wrote the piece about mm. moving your audience from the being a great immutable artifact at the end of this thing to being that they are that the audience are involved in the production and the development and the iteration of it. I'm all right. He's these are pretty pretty much exclusively print products there's yeah. very little he does that's digital first but it's 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 the exact same model and if if he can use that model of involving his audience and iterating with his audience and involving them in yeah. the process and if he can get them to commit to these sort of products yeah. which are like they're getting people to sort of put out the money for for you know full color volumes of that length and in that yeah. production quality is not an easy task it's not an easy task and no. but the, it, the model works for that but he could not have started off with the familiar and the 27 volume familiar because no. that that's a big that's a big budget production a, that you need to do iterate towards that's a massively budget production and maybe one thing maybe what we do next in the next podcast is look at house of leaves and the origin of house of leaves and, and just get me to rant about house of leaves for an hour about <laughs> but it absolutely it's weirdly it is a very big thing but it started very small yeah, and it has a history in terms of where it came from that I think maps very interestingly on to what we're saying that a digital publisher is starting with because it's absolutely experimental. It's absolutely um, run at a very base level of distribution of trying to get an audience for something of working with it, but also it manages it manages in a very weird way to become the blockbuster at the same time. Yeah, although I think it was never designed to be that. Just kind yeah. of emerges out of that. It sounds um, like we've got a plan for the next one. I think we have, and I think that's probably a decent place to wrap up this one and go and have some lunch. Yeah, so if you've listened so far and you've managed to put up with us, thank you, and we'll Good see you, you next time. Indeed. <laughs>